Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Emmanuel Scala to the show. Welcome, Emmanuel. Thanks, Jeremy. Emmanuel is the Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Toast. If you're not familiar with Toast, they are a restaurant management system in hyper growth mode. They are exceeding $2 billion valuation now, just raised a Series E a few months ago for $250 million. And Emmanuel alone is adding about 40 to 50 people to her team each month. So it's a pretty uh, insane growth phase. And that's precisely what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about scaling customer success in a hyper growth environment. So before we get into that, though, I'd love to get to know you a little better, Emmanuel. So I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question is to reflect on your favorite sales or customer success or leadership book of all time and, and why that means so much to you. I would probably say Simon Sinek, Start With Why. I think it's it's an important leadership book, but it's very relevant in sales as well, but usually doesn't come up in like your kind of top sales books. It technically usually comes up in your top leadership books, but I think it's really relevant for sales especially when you think about the fact that early salespeople in their career tend to start with what and not start with why and really understanding you know, why someone would buy your solution, why someone should do anything, why someone should change their behavior is pretty critical. Simon does a really good TED Talk on it. So if you don't want to read the entire book, you can just listen to the TED Talk. But I start with why in pretty much every conversation um, I now have, or I'm trying to persuade anyone, including my children, to do something that they may not otherwise do. So I think it's a great book. We've had other people talk about that as being one of their favorite books. You're the first one who mentioned the, this important subtlety, which I think is very true that early career sales professionals tend to start with what? What does that mean to you? The what is the, like the solution that they're selling, right? So, you know, they'll tend to start with, you know, Hey, are you, you know, we have a CRM system that does A, B, and C, or, you know, we have this great widget that's going to, you know, do A, B, and C for you. And they may even go as far as saying the benefits, right? So, you know, it can increase your productivity or it can help your managers with coaching. Okay, that's great. And it's took it one step further than the what, uh, but still didn't get to the why. You know, why should I care about coaching? Why should I care about whatever increase in performance that you're expecting for me to get. Why should I care about those things? Um, how are they going to help me both with my business objectives, but also, you know, how are they going to help me personally um, and professionally? And I think it gets lost. I think it's hard for early salespeople to do that because then they're, if they're selling to a C-suite or if they're selling to executives, they may not actually understand what motivates that C-suite or that executive when you are forced to start with why and when you actually go through the exercise of doing that, then you're forced to really understand what your buyer wants. And so you can't just rely on what you know about your technology and what you know about your case studies or what you know about the benefits that it has given to other companies, but you're forced to really understand the motivations of the person that you're um, interacting with, which is a forgotten step, I think, in a lot of sales training. For you guys in the restaurant platform business, what is the why for you that you want your salespeople and your customer success people to start with? So for us, because we're selling primarily to SMB customers, I mean, these restaurant owners and operators are working off of razor thin margins. Now, they don't necessarily have time for technology. 
they just want it to work. Um, and so we make sure that we are spend a lot of time actually doing customer empathy training and doing restaurant 101 training so people understand what the average restaurateur is going through and that we put them uh, in the shoes of the average restaurateur. And the why for the restaurateur is really allowing them to do what they love. They went into the business because they love to cook or they love hospitality. They love serving guests. They didn't go into the business because they want to be you know, looking at sales reports or trying to figure out how to split tips or trying to figure out what's the best way to you know, launch e-commerce um, and online ordering, right? And so for us, the why is allowing the restaurateurs to give uh, free up time so they can do what they love. So their business objective might be to run a more organized restaurant and their professional objective then would be to free up time in order to be able to, to cook or devote more time to hospitality or perhaps expand to additional locations and so on. Yeah. I mean, you actually think about it. Most restaurateurs, they're artists first, right? They're creators first, their hospitality first, their business second. Now, when you go up into, you know, chains and, and multi-units and yeah, then you start to really start thinking more about the business first, but the vast, there's 700,000 restaurants in the U.S. alone. And the vast majority of them are SMB and the vast majority of the owners are doing it because they love food or they love hospitality. And what they want more than ever is to be able to cook and good food and to be able to deliver that and give, you know, an amazing guest experience. And they can't do that if they're hampered by technology. But the average consumer is buying food with technology. I mean, takeout and delivery are the new norms, just part of the consumer's expectation in terms of how they dine at a restaurant. And what we just want to do is we want to make sure that we've uh, democratized the small business, giving them the technology that the big guys can have so that they can focus on what they love to do and they can thrive. We'll get into the aspects of how you serve them, but let's uh, ask one more question before we get there, which is I'd love to know the first thing you remember selling either you know as a kid or even the first professional sale you did because you had quite a long and storied career in sales before you moved into customer success. As a kid, this is crazy, but I remember we lived in an apartment building when I was really young. And I remember sitting on like the front wall of this apartment building, um, trying to hawk the jewelry that my grandmother gave me that I didn't like. <laughs> um, uh, so she would always give me jewelry that I never liked. Um, and then I remember trying to sell it. Hopefully it was just costume jewelry and not real, <laughs> real gemstones. I don't think it was real. And hopefully she's not listening because uh, I'd feel bad. First professional... Sales was actually at a startup. One of the first things I did was just cold call. I landed our very first deal with Tower Records, and um, it was just really exciting because it was the you know very first revenue for the company and first customer. All right. Well, we'll wind the clock forward to customer success there at Toast, and I guess I'll start with the metrics. How metrics driven are you in customer success, and which metrics do you focus on? Very metric driven. Um, I think that part of it comes just from my operational background and my sales background. And part of it is Toast. Toast is a pretty metric driven organization. My department covers everything um, customer facing post sale. So we manage all from implementation all the way through to retention. And so our metrics will change depending on the life cycle of the customer. So in the implementation side, I'm looking at just number of go lives every month. So that's, you know, that's a pretty important metric that we, that we look at um, as well as margin. And so uh, it's a PL, so I do look at the PL. And then I look at the quality of those implementations. So that's, those are kind of the primary implementation metrics that we look at. And, but we also dig deeper into productivity of everybody on the implementation team 
and mix of implementation type and some other things. I always think of leading indicators and lagging indicators, the go lives, the implementation margin, and I would assume the quality metric, and I'm, we'll get into what, how you measure that, but I would assume all three of those are more lagging indicators. They're all lagging, yep. Do you have any sort of leading or real-time indicators to understand how the implementation is progressing? So I have real-time indicators to understand the pipeline progression or the weakness backlog. And it, honestly, they're the exact same as you would have in sales, right? So it's a funnel analysis. So I look at the top of the funnel, which are bookings that come from sales. And so I can see how those are progressing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And then I look at stage conversion throughout our funnel and same things you'd look at in sales, days and stage, stage conversion, overall conversion. So those are my leading indicators. Instead of being pipeline, it's backlog with what we call it. And so key metrics can be like the age of the backlog, the time it takes to get, you know, so our basically our cycle time, right? So our time to go live through that backlog. And then we can break that down by stage. So I can see if there's a certain stage that's tripping up uh, certain teams. And I can, of course, break that down by team as well. So I can see if there's early indicators of things getting stuck in the funnel. So pretty similar to managing a sales pipeline uh, is managing our backlog pipeline. And do you have implementation substages? So once it gets out of backlog and starts being actively worked, are there substages within active working implementations? Yeah, absolutely. So there are stages. So there are stages like, you know, kickoff call requested, kickoff call confirmed, menu built, menu complete, you know, installation date secured. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different milestones and stages that we go through. On average, it's like a 60-day process. And there's a lot of key milestones. Toast is not only a software company, but we're also a hardware company as well as a fintech company. And so the hardware and networking adds some complexity to our implementation. And so we really have to track everything from you know, hardware being shipped to wiring in a restaurant being confirmed that it's complete to, you know, when um, an implementer is going to actually show up on site to when we're going to do training, et cetera. Lots of milestones and we can track the progress of all those so we can get early indicators of how things are progressing. Do you actually send your folks out into the field to engage your customers or it's all done remotely? It's a combination. So the more complex restaurants will have a field implementer, which is a Toast employee. And the simpler restaurants with a simpler implementation will have a guided uh, implementer who will do it over the phone. Got it. Another thing on implementation is I've had a number of jobs where we basically figured out there are these three or four things that if we know they're in place, then the customer is you know, X percent more likely to renew yep. as the contract progresses. I would assume that's also a part of the secret sauce that you have there. Yeah. So we do both. I mean, we look at things that are in place and do happen that will predict success, but we also obviously want to be paranoid. Um, my first job out of college was at Intel and Andy Grove wrote Only the Paranoid Survive, which I think is one of the best business books. I probably should have said that actually in the earlier question, one of the best business books ever. So I look at things also that could predict something going wrong. So we do both. You know, we have the ability to, even in the implementation cycle, predict when something looks like it's going to be challenging or difficult, and then we can adjust accordingly, whether that's adding more time to the implementation, assigning a different implementer, or just halting the process and making sure that the customer is engaged and is listening. You mentioned quality is one of the things that you measure. How do you assess quality of the implementation? Yeah, so a couple of different ways. One is through surveying our customers. So we will ask them during that journey. We use a customer effort score. It is on a scale of one to seven, you know, how easy was the implementation process. 
So that's one way we do it. And the other way we do it is post live. At that point, the implementation team is handing off the customer to our restaurant success and our support team. And so we measure the number of uh, support tickets in the first 30 days, as well as the customer success individual will also start to engage with the customer. We can look at the number of negative and positive engagements that that customer success person is having with them. So we can look at all of the above to be able to assist on quality. I learned years ago that customers who have support issues that get resolved are actually more likely to renew than customers who never have support issues at all. For you guys, is there is there banding that basically there's a certain threshold that's too many tickets, but there might also be a certain threshold that's too few support tickets in that in that first 30-day period? Yep, that's exactly right. So I do have it banded. We look at the percentage of customers that are above that threshold. That's the cohort that we're worried about. Everybody that's in the middle of that threshold, I'm actually not worried about at all um, because that's where they should be. It's interesting. People think support tickets are bad in general. And, you know, you hear a lot about things like deflecting support tickets, but some are truly bad. Like if something's breaking or something is uh, not working as expected, obviously those are the support tickets that you don't want to have. But a lot of support tickets are good because it means a customer is engaged. So a lot of the how-to support tickets generally means that the customer is engaged and really wants to understand this. Now, the challenge is, even though they're technically show engagement, uh, which is a good thing, it's still taking up time, right? Um, They still have to stop what they're doing and pick up the phone and engage with support or, or start a chat or send an email and engage with support. And so it's still a disruption from their, what they'd love to be doing, which is not interacting with support. So while I don't mind that interaction, because I think it's a healthy interaction, I also know that we want to give customers back time. Um, And if there's anything that we can do in the product to just make it more intuitive or other ways to avoid the call, in general, they would be happier. That doesn't mean that zero is good. You know, sometimes no news can be bad news. And so we do need to make sure that we're checking in with our customers, even the ones who aren't checking in with us periodically, which is why we use NPS to do that. We were talking a little about metrics for implementation. After implementation, what sorts of metrics do you look at? So after implementation, the customers get handed off to support for more inbound reactive help. And then uh, what we call restaurant success, which is essentially a CSM function for retention and for product adoption, best practices, and some upsell. And so the metrics that we look at post live uh, we definitely look at MPS. That's that is our north star um, and the thing that guides us the most. But we also look at retention. You know, challenges retention is a lagging indicator. We look at cut, the percentage of customers that are at risk as a leading indicator, and then we'll look at upsells. But we also are you know focused on a lot of our support metrics. For us, again, back to our customer base, time is of essence. Time is a huge commodity, and so responsiveness and resolution is really, really, really critical. So we answer the phone within 30 seconds, which we measure uh, how quick we are to answer the phone. And we also measure resolution. And so we want to make sure that as many tickets as possible are resolved on the very first call so that the customer doesn't need to, you know, wait for an answer from engineering or tier two or get a call back. Our customers don't have the time for that. You know, if they're going to place a call, they need to make sure that their issues are getting resolved on that call. Rolling back a little to something you said earlier was your Certain types of support tickets are how-to tickets. And it made me wonder, Are you? do you track both the type, so how-to versus something else, 
and the disposition of each support ticket of, of how it ultimately concluded what was the quote unquote temperature of the customer when they called in. Yeah, we check we check all the above. So we check the type of ticket, we track the product category or the specific even sub product, uh, we get pretty granular. As an example, because of hardware, we have dozens of different hardware pieces out in the field. So we'll track the very specific um, piece of hardware. If it's software, then we'll track like where is it a reporting issue? Is it a kitchen ops thing? So we'll get the area of the product, the type of ticket it is, and the resolution code. So what do we do to resolve it? And then what was the last one you asked? Oh, it was in disposition. Yeah, uh, yeah. Was the customer happy? So, and some companies have gone so far, I guess, as to use some natural language processing in real time to understand whether the customer is angry or not angry. I don't know whether that stuff works at this point. We haven't tested that yet, that sort of, sort of sentiment analysis. We do ask the agents to come up with it themselves based on what they can hear. We are using AI to help. Our solution is pretty complex. There's a lot of modules, a lot of complexity to it, and the fact that it's you know, hardware and software and networking and payments and other things that can get pretty complex. So we do use AI to help the agents um, find answers faster. That has helped, but we haven't yet used any kind of AI to look at sentiment. To get those answers faster, is that homegrown or is that something that you have found a tech platform solution for? No, we've outsourced. We've found a tech platform. It's called Tala, T-A-L-L-A. And the benefits of that is it's helping get the agents answers um, fast. And it's also helping us identify where there are holes and or duplicates or just not enough richness in all of our documentation. So it has sort of this two benefits of speed of answer, but also quality of all of our documentation um, and kind of filling that knowledge gap. And when you're hiring as fast as we are, knowledge management is a pretty critical problem. I mean, if you can shave off a minute per customer interaction, which benefits the customer because they get back to doing what they need to do um, and benefits us, that adds up pretty quickly. And obviously, we want to give out the right answers. Um, we don't want customers to leave a support interaction and try something and have it not work and then have to just call again. And so filling that knowledge gap is pretty critical in technology. I think it's a lot easier than just having a human check every piece of content in an organization as big as Toast. With the size of the organization you have and the growth rate of the team, that also helps you onboard new people faster. You also mentioned net promoter score. So for folks who are not familiar, that's the question, which is, would you recommend us to a friend or a colleague on that zero to 10 scale? And then usually a complimentary question about why. At what phase do you ask NPS? Because some people ask it at the, you know, when you just have an interaction or some people ask it at certain moments or just periodically. I'm curious how you use NPS. We use it pretty extensively. So the, the three surveys, and I'll even just take a step back to the three surveys that we do. So we have a customer effort score survey at the end of implementation, which is really asking about how hard or easy was the implementation process. Given that that's the very first interaction post-sale, we want to make sure that that's as easy as possible. So we're really focused on, instead of focused on likelihood to refer, which is just not that relevant during implementation, frankly. We want to focus on you know, the ease of that onboarding process for them. And then we ask a CSAT question at the end of every uh, support interaction, which is really more transactional, which is just like, you know, how was that, that transaction? How was that interaction with that support agent? That's a really transactional metric. And then MPS is the net promoter score is the holistic uh, metric that we look at to measure customer health overall. And the way that we do that is we actually do it in app. So it is in the reporting and, and configuration part of Toast. 
So it's a pop-up that comes up in app and it asks the NPS question. And we have a lot of business logic around how often it shows up. So what we do is we don't want it to come up in the first 30 days because we have other ways of assessing uh, customer satisfaction in the first 30 days through our RSM team as well as through uh, the surveys. We also don't want people to get the survey more than four times per year. So that way we get a lot of responses. And so our, our sample size is really big. And we also get responses every single day and every single week and every single month, which allows our teams to uh, follow up in real time. So you're not just being dumped a survey every quarter with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses that now you have to you know, go through. And by the time you do, it's been three weeks before they answer the survey and they're saying, what are you talking about? I don't even remember this survey. So we respond to detractors in, in real time the same day that they give us that score so that we can have a meaningful conversation about why. To the detractors, but not necessarily the neutrals of the promoters? No, we generally, right now, we're focused mostly on the detractors. Um, just because of bandwidth issues, I would love to be able to get to the neutrals and the promoters. And we will eventually, but right now with bandwidth, we've been focusing on the, the tractors. I'm not directly involved with NPS here at Salesloft, but I have been involved in the past. And we have a very, very similar approach. No NPS in the first 30 days. If there was a transaction, we use CSAT, customer satisfaction scores instead. And then we did, I think we did twice a year on, you know, no more than twice a year. So they basically got the NPS thing every six months. My recollection was the response rate, I want to say it was like 10 to 12%. All the detractors we sent, you know, for immediate response, just like you did. And then with the promoters, we sent a, a notification to whoever the account manager was to go and ask and seek a referral, right? Because if you're going to recommend to a friend, they say nine or a 10, yes, then they're by definition a promoter and, and therefore go seek the referral. We have a, an activation engine that customer marketing runs around referrals. We just don't do it in CS, but the customer marketing team will go, you know, seek referrals, especially from promoters. I don't recall the exact number, but it's somewhere in the 30% range of our new business comes from referrals. It's a pretty word of mouth business, so it's not surprising that it's that high, but we have a formal way of tracking where the referral came from and reaching out to our promoters to, to get those referrals. How do you actually you know, scale the team rapidly with the growth rate that you have, hiring, training, onboarding? Let's go there a little bit. And we can start with hiring. How do you find 50 new qualified customer success candidates to bring in each month? So we have a kick-ass recruiting team, which really helps. Having internal recruiters has made a pretty significant difference. And Toast you know, now has a a great brand reputation. So we're able to attract a lot of high quality candidates, but we do go and search in places that um, others may not normally search. So one for us, one big source of our great candidates is actually restaurants, especially on my team where um, having worked in a restaurant before is really important for that customer. I think about 65 to 70% of my team has worked at a restaurant before, not just as a, you know, a dishwasher or a hostess or something like that, but a, we have plenty of people who are, you know, GMs, former managers, former bar managers, former owners of restaurants. We also are very focused on diversity and inclusion. And so we'll go look at sources of underrepresented personnel to find those gems. And then, you know, we'll, we do promotion activities. I mean, we're pretty focused on LinkedIn and we're pretty focused on promotion and Facebook. And we'll also hold open houses. We actually even did a billboard in Omaha. We have a second office in Omaha. We just did a billboard there just on recruiting alone. So 
the actual, the funnel hasn't been a challenge for us. We, we get a lot of applicants. Our challenge is more like weeding through the applicants and putting, you know, having a really robust recruiting process and interview process so that we let the best of the best in the door. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, fine tuning our recruiting processes. Um, things like, you know, no candidate can get an offer with less than four interviews. Uh, we really want to spread the wealth in turn and making sure that, you know, hiring managers aren't making exclusive decisions. We also give, you know, hiring managers can have a a no veto, but they can't have a yes veto. So if they're um, in the debrief uh, meeting, if there is contention, even though the hiring manager ultimately is a decision maker, we don't want that hiring manager to be able to completely veto everybody on a yes. We want to take input of the, the entire team. We spend a lot of time on interviewing training. We also have every every interview comes with a case study of some some sort. Pretty intense. I mean, we've, I've had candidates say, well, that was a really intense interview process, but that's by design. We put a lot of effort up front in an intense interview process to maximize the chance of a positive hire. In sales, the skills test, if you will, that you refer to as the case study is often a role play of some kind, and it can get more sophisticated, obviously, as you go up into enterprise sales. Is that case study for you something similar? Is it a role play of particular customer success situations, or is it different than that? It's almost always a role play. For the customer-facing people, it's a role play. It's a really sticky situation one, you know, a super angry customer or a customer that's threatening to cancel, and then we run the role play. Transitioning over to training, I have Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness, running through my head. And I remember reading in there that Zappos, the shoe company that he started and now is owned by Amazon, will actually offer people money at the end of onboarding to not take the job. Is that something you've ever tried or, or is that something you're actively doing? I do love the idea, but have not tried that. Our onboarding program is two weeks classroom, you know, pretty intense. And then there's shadowing and that kind of comes next in, a, in the phase and then slowly easing into the job, right? And so if you're an implementer, the slowly easing into the job may be that you're taking an easier customer or that you're playing second. So you may be playing a second role. If you're a support agent, slowly easing into it, maybe that you're, for your first few calls, someone's you know monitoring that call and can always jump in and, and save if assisted if is necessary. So there's this easing in process, you know, and we have dedicated enablement and training teams to do this because we're running that boot camp training. We're running it um, every month, and it's two weeks long. So half the time we're running we're running some kind of onboarding training, and then we have just like our ongoing certification training and quality checks and things like that. We haven't done the offering people comp to leave, even though boot camp in the first 30 days is pretty intense. Some people have left after the first 30 days saying uh, this is, you know, different than I than I thought it was. But we spent a lot of time up front in the recruiting process, setting expectations to avoid that happening. If you reflect on our conversation a bit, what do you think are the keys to success in, you know, building a customer success organization that, that truly serves its customers and hyperscaling? just to sort of sum it up or things I have not asked you yet about that same topic? Yeah, I would say there's two. When you're scaling, people can often get really myopic about, okay, well, you know, my day-to-day job is answering the phone, right? Or my day-to-day job is taking a customer live or my day-to-day job is retention or something along that lines. And they can, it's easy sometimes for people to lose, lose a forest or the trees. 
And so one of the things that I believe is probably the most important when you're scaling is to constantly drum on the drumbeat of the why. You know, the, the company has its why, um, you know, our mission statement that guides us. But I also have a mission statement in CS and it's quote unquote, create raving fans and successful restaurants. And I use that terminology. It's uh, in posters all over the office. I use the terminology in a lot of my communications. I'm constantly talking about raving fans. We have awards that we do throughout all the departments in CS. We have all hand meetings for all CS as well as at each of the sub departments that is just reinforcing the why are we here? The why are we here? The why are we here? We're here to create raving fans and successful restaurants. And so there's just a higher purpose to what everyone's doing, which is important. And you can't under communicate that, especially as you're scaling, you just have to remind people over and over again. And and the words matter, like using the specific terminology matters because otherwise people can create their own intent. Um, And so I want to reinforce the the same terminology over and over. Repetition is pretty important. And then communication is really critical. I send out a weekly email. We do monthly AMAs. We do a quarterly all hands. Each sub-department has um, their own all hands that they do. We have bi-weekly office hours with every executive on my team. So just keeping an open door, keeping communication constantly reinforcing communication. We're pretty rigorous with OKRs and and cascading those down to the individual contributor, all that, you know, it's hard work and you have to be really, really deliberate about it. Whereas when you're in the early startup phase, you don't have to be as deliberate about it. Now we have to be super deliberate about it, but it's the only thing that works when you scale because you realize pretty quickly that getting 600 people to all be on the same page every day, all day is, uh, is almost a full-time job in and of itself. So that's one key to scaling. And then the other thing that we didn't talk about much is just pure volume, not just of the employees, but of our, of our customers, you know, how the one-to-one high touch model becomes really, really hard with an SMB focus that we have. And at the scale that we have, it just becomes hard both from a cost perspective, but it also comes hard to, to maintaining quality across all those interactions and so I think a lot about that angle, not just the employee angle, but, you know, the how do we scale just for the sheer volume of customers that's coming in. Well, if people want to join your team and or learn more about you or reach out to you, what's the best way to find you? So LinkedIn is an easy way to find me. On Twitter, it's at L-E-L-L-E, Scala, S-K-A-L-A. Again, that was Emmanuel Scala. She is Senior Vice President of Customer Success at the Hyper Growth Company, Toast. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.